0: Yeah, I think we've always thought about the future of work as a big academic dry subject, but this has been a real-time live experiment, and I think it's forced those that would never have tried out new ways of working to really try it out, and I think they've seen the benefits. I will say I think productivity has improved because I think there is a clarity and focus that's required when you're on screen and it's much harder to multitask. And certainly we've learned in my team that we are the ones that are both on audio and video and devoting our time and energy and focus to the conversation and the discussion and the work at hand. Other teams are using, are not using the video and then I think you feel the gap in connection. But I think if you're all there together, it's an incredibly creative way to bring people together and allow all levels of the organization to contribute. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano? It's just
1: about to explode. But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope.
0: I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, you either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it.
1: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Fiona Carter, the global CMO of at and And Fiona, it's great to uh, have you in this unique forum at this unique moment in time. Fiona, I'd love to start by going back to your time at Oxford, Mm -hmm. and I think you majored in modern languages. Tell us about that time and how that academic focus inadvertently prepared you for your career path.
0: I will. So I went to St. Catherine's College, Oxford. Uh, That was a mid-century, progressive, modern college. You know, Oxford is a beautiful old town where one of the colleges at Oxford is called New College because it was built in 950 A.D. That's the new one. I was at a really, really modern one, which was uh, progressive, and one of the first to allow women to uh, come to Oxford and be in a mixed college. And I studied, modern languages Sounds super fancy. I actually studied French literature because I love reading. Uh, and I, I read French literature and English literature. And uh, I came from a world, honestly, where you didn't go to university to train for your career. You went to a university like Oxford to train your mind. And it was all about making your mind think logically and analytically, and they had a very unique way of teaching. So every week you got a essay question to answer. You had to go and do a ton of research in the beautiful old libraries, write a essay, which had to be structured with your um, answer to the question, your uh, debunking of your own answer to the question, and then your, um, your synthesis, your final recommendation. And then you had to one-on-one go and present to a very renowned, well-read professor. And it was one-on-one and you had to debate for an hour. So I was taught critical thinking skills at that university. And I look back and I think, gosh, what was a callow 18 year old doing with the very best professors of French and English literature? They must have had a terrible time. But I'm I'm grateful for it because uh, it, it retained my love of reading. It taught me to think logically and analytically, to stack up an argument and to hold my own one on one. And uh, really, they just thought they were training your brain so you could then go out and find whatever career you wanted to find. And I do make a joke of this. In those days, to find a career, you went, went to an actual building with actual people, with shelves, with lots of information. And that information was alphabetized. And I don't know, does advertising just start with A? And that's how I decided to enter it. Or did it have some kind of, I think it had the magical combination of business and creativity. I didn't see myself as, um, uh, I don't know, a finance professional or a potential doctor or even a lawyer. I knew I, I loved creativity and I knew that I cared deeply about what people do and how, why they do it and the psychology behind it. There's a lot of that critical thinking in literature. And I think that was sort of the magic that I saw in uh, advertising. During the 80s, what really captured the imagination of the people in Britain was incredible advertising. And a lot of the directors of those av- of those ads went on to be great Hollywood film directors, like Ridley and Tony Scott, for example, or Adrian Lyon.
1: On January twenty-fourth, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984.
0: And it was the time of the the incredible Levi's commercials. We used to wait with bated breath to see the next beautiful masterpiece from BBH with the next Levi's commercial with the beautiful musical soundtrack, um, music that would go straight to the top of the charts, this visual language that was sumptuous and beautiful and took you to worlds that you couldn't imagine. And I just knew I wanted to have some part of that creativity and be a part of that world. And that's how I uh, decided to apply to advertising agencies.
1: Well, the craft, though, especially back then, it seems, and maybe we just look back more fondly, you know, on years past, but there was almost a romance to it.
0: Oh, for sure, there was a romance. So in the UK, it was all about Soho. So all the ad agencies were in Soho. And there was a special culture surrounding the advertising industry. Um, it was you were uh, you were taught that you were there to make the most excellent and beautiful uh, pieces of work that you possibly could, because creativity was a competitive advantage, and kind of every nuance and every pixel mattered. I worked at um, uh, an agency called Low Howard Spink. It was fr- founded by Frank Low. Um, who was a mercurial flamboyant successful entrepreneur and he built an agency that wasn't that large but acted like it was very big and it acted like it was so big because it had the most creative people in the industry there and they truly believed that they could change the trajectory of a brand with their advertising and they were emboldened and empowered to believe in that and to make big incredible recommendations and there was a there was a really extraordinary breed of leaders, account leaders, that came up um, through that time. So Jonathan Mildenhall, who went on to Coke and Airbnb, was part of my crew. Uh, Karina Wilshire, who's now global CEO of Anomaly, um, Sarah Gold, who went on to be part of the founding of Claremont Hall being in, um, and the end partnership now in London. It was a it was a great cast of characters. But I'll I'll give you one story about the craft, the production team uh, at that time. So it's like, I don't know, mid, late 90s. uh, The production team um, had a name for uh, something called the Squib. It was named after a famous art director, Vince Squibb. And it was the amount you did not move the typeface to answer his tiny final change that the typeface wasn't quite large enough. So there was that much care and attention over the beauty and the communication of all of the advertising. Uh, everyone just wanted to deliver the very best. And what
1: is it? I remember when I first went over, when we took Advertising Week to London, we were greeted very warmly by Paul Bainsfair fair and the IPA. And mm-hmm. Nicola Mendelssohn was president at that time. Yeah. And you felt right away that there was a real camaraderie within the industry that everybody kind of knew each other, even those that were competing fiercely against each other were all friendly in a very different way than America. You've had the benefit of perspective uh, in both places, on both sides of the Atlantic. What is it about the UK in particular and in creative industry that they really all seem to rally around and perform brilliantly?
0: Yeah, I, well, I think the first thing to remember is Great Britain is a really small island. So there's not actually that many people um two uh the, it was all based in London. it was i don't know a few a few little areas like Covent Garden and Soho um, and there was just a shared passion for creativity there was a we didn't have a we didn't really have a film industry um but we believed that we were great artists and that You know, the UK sort of had its finger on the, a unique finger on the pulse of culture and was able to channel culture and even sometimes create culture through its advertising. And there was just, there's a kind of an unmatched passion, which it's right. I don't, I don't quite have that feel, feel that same creative sensibility over here, where I think much more over here, it's about really big business and just you know this was pre global business so i think the scale of the businesses was just very very different you know i i'll tell you another funny story when i just wanted to live in new york that's why i came over in 2000 and i got myself a job at darcy and then i eventually landed at bbdo when i was working on ge and my english colleagues kept saying to me why are you working on the electricity company and, I, and they had not really; they didn't have a sense of the global impact of GE. What an iconic, incredible brand it was, both in America's life but also on the global stage. And I, you know, I think we forget that. Uh, you know, the UK is—it's um, an incredible country, but it's quite a small country. And if you really want to play on the global stage, that's why—that's why I came to, to New York. I, I thought that America would be more complex. More fascinating, and and eventually have more global reach for me. And
1: and when you started out of school, I guess it was at Bates Dorland. Did you have New yeah. York? Did you have New York in mind as a young, you know, young lady back then?
0: You know, I think I'd always had a pipe dream of coming to New York. Yeah, my mother says it's the Irish in me that the Irish are always, you know, kind of hungry to go to their if uh, not their homeland, their kind of sisterland. So uh, I I don't know where it came from. I think it may have been, um, I think that dream may have been shaped by the movies, actually. As I look back, I think about Woody Allen's Manhattan. I I just think about most movies came from America and it seemed like such a land of possibility and uh, wonder and a melting pot in a way that was different from the UK. And i I just wanted to explore worlds. i have also heard they say that you come to New York if you feel you don't believe you belong where you live. and i also, I always felt a little different where where I grew up in a tiny country, a tiny village, um, and you know, I rode horses and wandered all over the countryside. but i read I read and devoured Vogue, and I wanted to know more about theater and art and culture and movies. Um, And I and I just felt like I was more of an urban person. And I think the very best urban cities are those that are tightly packed and intense and where new culture is happening all of the time. And you you have that to a certain extent in London, Paris, but New York is the ultimate. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. First of all. I couldn't get my social security number because the fraud happened at the Social Security Office and someone some employee there stole my social security number. So I I had to be paid in the UK and take my money out through an ATM. Second, I couldn't rent anywhere because even though I had a mortgage in the UK, the American banks didn't uh but didn't didn't use my English credit history. It didn't count, didn't count for nothing. Uh, So I had to find someone to guarantee me for my my rent. And third, I discovered that advertising agencies here were very different. And so I think uh, they were surprised by me and I was surprised by them. So I was used to an account handler being this synthesis of business leader, strategist, and creative thinker and seller. So it was very strange to find the role so much more, uh, I guess, one-dimensional over here, and much more about relationship building and uh, looking after the client. So I think I was a bad fit for Darcy. So I didn't last there that long. They were actually struggling. It, uh, I joined always. They were struggling with P and G, or particularly that brand. And I think their business was changing. I can't remember what happened to them, but they dissolved the Darcy brand, right? And it got it got. Bought by somebody else, but the the advertising maybe it got combined with publicist. The, the advertising network disappeared, um, and so I lost my job, which is the first time I you know ever lost a job. So that's always uh, a day of awakening and reckoning. That was a surprise, and uh, you know I had to reevaluate. I just knew that I wanted to stay in New York. I was having the best time. I loved the I just loved the cultural beat of the of the place. So um, I got myself another job. I briefly was at Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve, um, which was a small consultancy. We, were, we acted as chief future officer for companies like Campbell Soup and Tylenol. And that was great experience, but I was better suited to be in an advertising agency. And I was connected to BBDO and they needed a global uh, advertising account lead to run GE. Um, GE had just transitioned from Jack Welsh to Jeff Immelt. And uh, BBDO had be, be, been the agency of record for a long time, and they were working on how to move from, we bring good things to life, to the next platform to illuminate and amplify Jeff, amplify Jeff's vision. So that was a wonderful opportunity.
1: I'd love to get your take on, I know you've really strong, incredibly strong creative roots, but of course you've also worked with closely and in your role as, at at and certainly have worked quite a bit on the media side, Give us your perspective on the decision years ago to separate them and put them into separate cages. Now those walls have sort of crumbled formally or informally. And my sense is an awful lot of the best creative work these days in the digital environment is, is coming out of the media sides uh, of, of the house. Give us the benefit of perspective now looking back on that period. Did they get it wrong then? Was it the right decision at the right time?
0: Look, I think it made sense then because uh, you wanted to aggregate the buying to get the leverage for the clients. So I understand when it was a, a buying and a price game, it made absolute sense. Um, if you fast forward to today, though, it's uh, you're looking for completely different capabilities from a media agency. And uh, I would actually I would go further than you I would say often many of the most highly awarded creative ideas are pure media ideas like the creativity that you see in a media agency is incredible with their access to data um, with the redefinition really of what an ad is um, it's no longer you know 30 seconds on TV. it can be an event happening a great use great piece of uh, data. Um, So actually at AT AT&T, what I did when I first joined about five years ago is uh, we brought media and creativity back together. So we asked our agencies to pitch and it was very important to me to one, find uh, an advertising agency that was data first and not TV buying and upfront first. And secondly, to, to bring the teams together so they could retain their separate expertise, but they could uh, mind meld and collaborate all the way through the advertising process to the benefit of each leg of the journey. And, and that's why we brought Hearts and Science and BBDO together. And they co-locate, they work together, um, they read each other's minds. And for us, that's just been much more effective because, you know, at and is one of the largest advertisers is working at scale, is working at such pace, and it's just essential that you're not trying to translate between the two disciplines; that they are working in lockstep. And so, for us, it's been much more—it's uh, been much more effective, and we've been able to do it whilst having Hearts and Science sit within the power, the buying power of the Omnicom Media Group. So we now have the best of both worlds. I think you're seeing a move to. Um, thoughtful advertisers, um, kind of leading the way they want new agency models to be structured and making it work for them.
1: You made this giant leap after, you know, pretty healthy amount of time on the agency side to the client side. Yes. Were you recruited? Did you go for a job? Did somebody (laughs) whisper a sweet nothing in your ear and... You found yourself in Texas being interviewed
0: i I had an incredible career at BBdo and I ran big complicated pieces of business and I reported to the global CEO and I had the respect of all the top leaders. but I'd sort of fallen outside of the um, the traditional chain of command, you know I was like a satellite. Uh, and there were a few of us that ran really large P&Ls that were sort of satellites outside this traditional structure. And I think I, I just wanted more for my career and my onward trajectory than running big pieces of business. And it was there was still a you know a glass ceiling at that time. It was still hard for women to get those roles. It wasn't really talked about. Um, the issue wasn't talked about and you know you just sort of found yourself not on the list um so I made a sideways move before that I went to work for Omnicom at DAS which is where you met me and I was chief operating officer uh, of a collection of 14 brand and agency, brand advertising agency and research agencies. We brought them together and tried to create synergies and uh, optimize revenue and, you know, drive business development and innovation. And that was extra- That was an extraordinary experience for me because I got to, I learned how to run a P&L at the feet of a master, John Wren. Uh, And, you know, he, I really learned, I watched and listened, and and I learned from everything that he did to, you know, run Omnicom so perfectly, so financially. Uh, But I I knew I wanted more, and I was very fortunate that Linside, who was at Hydric and Struggles, uh, had a brief to get an outside-in thinker, someone who understood agencies, how to get the best of agencies, someone who was a creative thinker to come and run brand and advertising for AT and T, and to AT and T's credit, they identified that they needs they needed somewhat different skills in that role. And I interviewed for it, and um, you know, you just go on a lark and think you'll test yourself and you'll learn in the process. And it kept going and it kept going, and I fell in love with the brand because it's so iconic in America. I fell in love with the scale. Um, the scale touches, it touches everybody's lives. It's a part of everybody's lives. It's a huge avatar. Is there a large sponsor? There was something very exciting about that. And I really loved the people. The people were very different, um, mostly from Texas, San Antonio, and it taught me to understand a different part of America, but they're really, really good people, high intelligence, um. High standards, really good quality people. And it just seemed a very exciting opportunity for me. And it really uh, a highly fortunate opportunity to make that kind of asymmetric move was unusual. And I was early in the game. I was early in the game of uh, moving out of agencies. So let me, you know, 2013, a few people have moved to, you know, Facebook and Google. But agencies were still on a high and people weren't leaving them yet.
1: But that's an awfully big gig. I mean, you were still rel- you're still young now. You were certainly young then. Not that young. <laughs> wow well, that's a very big gig and, and certainly one of the most iconic brands uh, in our culture and arguably culture anywhere. The company you join relative to the company it is today, it's a very different company five years later.
0: Yes, I joined just as they were acquiring DirecTV. And then obviously uh, I have uh, lived through uh, the acquisition of Time Warner and the evolution to become a modern media company. Yeah, it's been, uh, what is so fascinating about at and is it's completely at the intersection of technology, connectivity, content. And, you know, it's in a way it's where life happens.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting bet because it's gone a very. Verizon and AT and T have taken very different directions um, to grow, and AT and T has made a huge bet on that intersection of what you just said of technology, connectivity, and content. The merger or the acquisition, uh, Warner, that was a tough one. What was it like being in the hierarchy of a company? and being in the crosshairs of the federal government. And, you know, that was a little bit dicey for a while. The nation's second largest wireless carrier announced the more than $85 billion merger on Saturday. The deal would give AT&T control of Time Warner's media portfolio. This includes HBO, CNN, TNT, and the Warner Brothers Studio. Uh,
0: Well, I'm fortunate that I was not in the crosshairs, and I'm fortunate that my leaders... Uh, have grown up in regulated regulated industry and they know how to comport themselves and handle themselves. Uh, And, you know, I think they did it with grace and logic and and discipline. And it it was a process to work through. And, you know, a due process that uh, that needed to be worked through. Uh, Obviously it took longer than we expected. Uh, But we were very excited to come out the other side and very excited to begin, you know, to begin executing the vision. You know, the the whole point is that uh, on that cell phone that you hold, you are increasingly watching more and more video. And so this bringing together of content and connectivity is what is key. And we're just beginning to, you know, explore the possibilities.
1: It's huge. I mean, this is a big deal, not just in size, just in terms of the whole media landscape changing because of it and the dominoes that are expected to fall afterwards. We are seeing a resetting of the media table right before our very eyes. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And and I think, I think, you know, you said grace. The word I had in my head was class. And I thought that The leaders of the company, when things were a little bit challenging, they didn't speak a lot, which more people should do, not speak. Uh, And when they did, they came off very polished, very measured, and very classy. And uh, I I think, you know, in the end, the right outcome, you know, happened. Um, But I gave them a lot of credit because some of the public pressure can be, and we're seeing other companies now. I mean, Facebook is now really, uh, you know, getting it from the civil rights world. And that's very tough on the leadership of a company and especially, you know, a company that's worked so hard to build and protect a brand.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think any marketer has learned over the last couple of years that increasingly companies will be judged by how they treat their customers, their employees and their communities. And it's, uh, it's part of being a corporate leader today and it's part of being a marketer today. And we know that um, increasingly people are making decisions, not just do you have a good quality product, is it good value for money, but they are keen to know and understand what your values are. And do you live your values for real? And and certainly I think we're in a world where uh, words are not enough and words easily become empty. And I think we're actually in a world, particularly right now, where dollars and signing checks are not enough. And uh, you have to step up and really look inside and think about the actions that you are going to take that match the values of your company and you have to live true and be authentic to the dna and the beliefs of your company and you need to do that both for your employees for society but also for business because increasingly it's what's driving business success is true authenticity and uh, an attention to the values. I, re- I mean, I actually, I look back at GE and I think about uh, the platform we created for Jeff Well's Eco-imagination. And he was, curiously, he was one of the first to identify that a company could be both great financially but also good societally. The Eco-imagination platform was all about his observation that his fastest growing businesses were green businesses. And that's because what the world wanted and the money will follow. That was what the world wanted to ensure that we will still be here many years later. And therefore the business follows. And I think we can, we can learn from that. That was back in 2004.
1: Yeah, no, he was ahead of the game. And certainly Paul Pullman was ahead of the game very much so, but at role here. And let's talk about the, you know, the modern Corona era for a bit your role is very different. Not only are you a company that has the wherewithal to support your local communities where you serve, but you are also literally keeping us all connected.
0: Yes.
1: There must have been some pivotal meeting when this started to happen where you and you lieutenant said, okay, we've got to shift our tone of voice, our message, our role is different now. It was always important, but... Right. Not this important. Um, yes. Because they're here, working day in, day out. AT&T is here, providing support with advanced services for first responders and connecting temporary hospitals, mobile testing sites, and emergency management centers. Because until their job is done, it is essential that we all have their backs. It's what we've always done. It's what we'll always do.
0: I think I can't remember when the pivotal moment was, but I think we, I think we came to that conclusion very, very quickly. I think that was probably helped by uh, my living in New York, in the epicenter, and fe- feeling very keenly what was happening uh, earlier than perhaps some of the other geographies. Um, I think COVID taught us that. Our purpose is important in a way that perhaps we had forgotten a little. I mean, we're here to connect, we're here to create connection between each other, between you and uh, what matters every day to thrive, and with Warner Media, between you and stories and experiences. And I, I think we realized very quickly that we needed to get beyond the traditional playbook of the traditional telecoms playbook of prices and devices, we needed to talk about how we were helping. And I think what's so fascinating about the scale of AT&T is how we were helping across such a broad cross-section of society. So for our consumers, uh, we moved very, very fast, um, no terminations, no data overages. We pivoted the, the experience very, very quickly to serve our customers safely. So quickly developed a much more robust um, e-commerce proposition, contactless delivery, contactless curbside pickup. I mean, we were making changes that might've taken five or six years in uh, five or six days, five or six weeks. Uh, We also, though, are uh, with FirstNet, which is our public safety network, which is purpose built after 9-11 to to ensure the very best network that's totally interoperable between all of the agencies. We were um, serving many on the front lines. We were getting U.S. Navy ship Mercy and Comfort set up with connectivity in hours and days rather than a month or so. Uh, We were helping the very people on the front lines. We offered, uh, we partnered with John Krasinski's Some Good News, which was the YouTube. You remember back in the day when uh, there was just an overwhelming uh, amount of negative news and he created this beautiful YouTube series. Good evening, everybody. Even though it is very clearly the afternoon and welcome to SGN. John, what is SGN? That's a good question. For years now, I've been wondering... Why is there not a news show dedicated entirely to good news? Well, desperately seeking my fix somewhere else, I reached out to all of you this week, asking, nay begging, for some good news. And boy, did you deliver. After reading those replies and the incredibly heartwarming stories that came with them, I thought, alright, enough is enough, world. Why not us? Why not now? So, ladies and gentlemen, this is your fault, and this is SGN. I'm John Krasinski and if it isn't clear yet, I have
1: absolutely no idea what I'm doing.
0: We partnered with him to uh, offer, uh, to say thank you to the healthcare heroes and offer free uh, wireless for uh, doctors and nurses. Um, we helped businesses get more broadband and connectivity than they'd ever had before so that we could continue to work from home effortlessly and without breaking a stride. I mean, it was—it it is the the spectrum On which we operate that I think is so extraordinarily impressive about AT&T. And I haven't even spoken about our employees. I mean, I I have to say, I think every company's first order of business is to look after their employees. We were deemed an essential business, but we we safely uh, kept at home those that could work from home, but we have so many that were working on the front lines in call centers, uh, in stores, and out looking after the um, out looking after the, um, the network. And we had to keep them safe. We had to keep them safe in the tens of thousands. Uh, it's, it's actually amazing to think back and look at the experiences that we've all been through in a, such a short period of time. I mean, the virus is so young. It's only, what, four or five months old? And you, you think at the speed with which businesses operated and pivoted, it's, it's, just, it's, a real, it's a real lesson when you look back.
1: And your team internally and externally, everybody was able to move as quickly as you needed them to?
0: Yes. So I will say AT&T is built for this because we have to keep the network up and running every year through hurricane season. So we have the very best disaster planning. We are geared and engineered to be able to respond in an instant. And I think that muscle memory served us well.
1: So, looking ahead, you've accomplished so much. You know, just in general terms, you look back, what, is there something in particular? that you're really proud of a piece of work at AT AT&T or or earlier in your career? And is there something looking ahead, again, just in general terms, that's on your list of things that you'd like to get done?
0: I'm very proud at AT AT&T of the work um, where I've represented AT&T around their values of standing for equality. And we were one of the first advertisers to sign up for See Her through the Association of National Advertisers. Uh, we took our very large advertising budget and we have ensured that uh, we have an accurate portrayal of women in all their intersectionality in our advertising. And we continue to measure that. And we believe that that's important because advertising shapes and makes culture and we are constantly measuring that because you can't manage what you can't measure and the improvement has been incredible. And most importantly, it has shown to us that diversity is just good business because that advertising outperforms other advertising on all of the best metrics. So I'm proud of that program. I'm also proud of our partnership with Tribeca Film Festival. We took our presenting sponsorship of the Tribeca Film Festival here in New York. And I collaborated with uh, Jane Rosenthal and I really wanted to do something different beyond the step and the repeat and the logo and the, and the checks. And we, collaborated on just, I think, a lovely idea that's probably more under the radar but has had some impact in the industry. We have uh, at and Untold Stories where we take uh, underrepresented filmmakers who can't get into the Hollywood system. Hi, I'm Ellie Fumbi. I'm the writer, director, and lead actress of Zenith. I'm Joseph Massantono, the producer of Zenith. So when I was six years old, I was transplanted from my elementary school in Cameroon where everyone looked like me to a French school in America where I was the only person of color in my class. It was a complete culture shock. I didn't know how to process this. And um, things just got harder for me as I got older because I wasn't black enough for my African American friends and I wasn't African enough for the Africans. And clearly the French, (laughs) I wasn't French enough for them either. Nobody wanted me. So I didn't know where I fit in. And um, years later, uh, I found myself in film school. I discovered um, a reality TV show called Breaking Amish. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we take underrepresented filmmakers who can't get into the Hollywood system, and we bring the entire weight of ATT and behind them along with the partnership of Tribeca. What does that mean? A million dollars, which means you can actually produce your film. You can get your film made. Tribeca Film Institute mentorship, so you can get it made with the advice of the very best you have been in the foxholes before. And uh, also distribution. Thanks to our video assets, we can ensure that the film gets seen. We're now on our fourth year, disrupted by COVID, but we've had a Nigerian-American filmmaker, Nigerian Prince. We've had um, Lucky Grandma, which is uh, features an 83-year-old I mean, I've got, she may be 80, but you know, in her 80s, a, an incredible Chinese American actress, um, uh, kind of ramshackle fun adventures in Chinatown in New York. Um, and we're, we would have uh, pre- premiered this year our third film, which again was from a Chinese American um, and it's kind of half animation, half live action. Here's the thing, the movies are all really good. They're lovely to watch, they got some distribution, and these filmmakers got their big break. And I find that very gratifying that we made that happen, particularly in the era today where we're newly sensitive about how society is holding back and not giving the very best equal opportunity to all.
1: Well, th- there's a real warmth to that story. And when you look back, and we I look pretty hard at all the work that you've done, in the last five years in particular. And I think there is an absolute thread of continu- continuity there around that notion of warmth, that you see how much the brand cares. And I'm a big fan of the Tribeca Film Festival, going back to its founding, which, as you recall, was the aftermath of 9-11, to bring people back downtown. And, yes. uh, and if I was American Express, I never would have given that up. And I thought it was really smart when AT stepped in when that, you know, opportunity at the top presented itself.
0: Well, we can, our history can mean that AT is sometimes perceived as a faceless corporation. That's not who ATT is. I've always said the people are the very best, kind-hearted, good people. And we are a big populist brand. And America is our audience and we need to serve our audience from a place of respect and we need to represent our audience. And I think we, I'm gratified to hear you talk about that. I think we do that with heart and with warmth.
1: All right, well, I'll let you go. I got one more question just to wrap because we always ask it. And uh, that is looking back on your career at any point, who were some of the great minds that you look back when you're awake at night and you're, you know, thinking about, boy, you know, that person that he or she really helped me and inspired me, or maybe you're down at a moment and you need to reach back into your brain for a little extra, little extra petrol and a little extra inspiration, (laughs) little extra inspiration.
0: Oh my God. So many. Um, my, uh, As I said, my first uh, leaders who taught me how to be a great advertising account director, David Wood and Andy Bryant, who are in the UK and London, I'm still in touch. Um, uh, I've had two incredible lady bosses that have lifted me up and catapulted me forward. Um, Susan Smith Ellis, who you'll remember from Omnicom and Red, And uh, she gave me the very best piece of advice. She said, always um, identify and nurture your successor because that's how you can move on to the next rung of your career by easily pulling someone up to take the job that you vacate. Uh, Laurie Lee at um, AT AT&T, who is an incredibly, um, again, warm, encouraging leader who wants to learn. Um, offers advice and cares deeply about you both personally and professionally and cares about bringing women along with her as she, as, as she has succeeded. She, she's a, our CEO of our global businesses, so she's incredible. And then I'll also say my BBDO family, Andrew Robertson, David Lubars, the values of that company are amazing. Um, they, you know, I can sometimes be a British quiet doer person. Andrew is the opposite, but he he always talks uh, about a couple of values, one of which is in a room always be a radiator, not a drain. I think that's important in life and and professional uh, circumstances. And uh, I think a great piece of leadership advice he gave me was um, lighter fire in them, not underneath them. So that people are encouraged and thrilled to do their very best for you, not scared. Turn fear into focus. Uh, and I think that he's always got words of wisdom. Uh, and I and I admire both David and Andrew's passion uh, and commitment to hard work and creativity. I, they're great role models. They're a David Lubar's was, I'll tell you one GE story. I remember Friday, it was a summer Friday in the summer. We were doing eco-imagination. Everyone had gone home. I needed to make a copy change. There was no one left. He was like relatively the new global creative director, executive creative director of the entire company. And he and I sat in his office and he wrote out the copy and gave me the copy and he's never taken his hand off the work and I admire that
1: all right well this was absolutely wonderful
0: thank you we'll we'll be in touch you'll see me around thank you very much for listening And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.